So we've been in the book of Proverbs uh, for a little while now, and Tim has been speaking through that. And what we're trying to ask in the book of Proverbs is what does biblical wisdom look like? And today, we're going to take a little bit of a break from that and ask a different question, which is what does the Bible say about congregational worship? And, and I do mean congregational worship. Worship is lifestyle, right? Uh, our entire lives, and I'm sure you've heard sermons about this, that worship does, isn't just what happens during the music, right? It, it, we call the whole part of this morning, what we do here in this building, a worship service, right? We are continuing in worship as we study God's word, all right? And when you go home, uh, you, you continue in worship as you live out uh, a Christian life and in relationship with God and relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, like that is all part of worship. Worship is all inclusive and the problem comes when we want to worship ourselves and we want to worship other things, right? And we've all heard sermons about that, but this is going to be a little bit different because I'm talking specifically about what we just did, congregational worship. And we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about that. And so the goal this morning is to set aside our, our earthly cultural ideas about worship, maybe some ideas about worship that have been formed by uh, a denominational background. And we, we want to get down to what does the Bible say about worship? How does God want to be worshiped? And what does that mean for you as a worshiper? Because what I've discovered in my life is that uh, worship and, and what I've discovered from studying scripture is that worship involves sacrifice, right? We see that very clearly in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system. But, but and, and you think of King David saying, I, I'm not going to offer God something that doesn't cost me something, right? And so what does that mean for us when we come in here and music is provided for you and we've got speakers and somebody singing nice and loud and, and on key, right? Like, I, how, how do we offer something? How do we sacrifice in worship? And, and why do we do that? And, and what you'll discover is that worship in a congregation is a communal thing that binds us together. It, it doesn't only bind us to our God, but it will bind us together as a people who establish the culture of heaven here on this earth. And I don't want us to miss out on any of that. I want the depth of relationship that we get with God when we come to him with a pure and true heart of worship out of a response for what he has done for us. And I want the, the depth of binding relationships that come out of a community that wants to chase after God together. Right? And so that's, that's ultimately the goal. There's no surprises this morning. I'm not going to, like give you a twist at the end of the sermon. Like, that's it. That's where we're going. Worship is, is sacrifice. It, it's, it's a closeness to God our, as our Father. It's intimacy in relationship with Him, and then intimacy in communion and unity with the body of Christ. Okay? So that's where we're going. And as I was preparing this message uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were in Proverbs chapter 4, and Tim actually said some things that just absolutely gripped me. And so I, I kind of want to quote our own pastor to us a little bit to remind us uh, a little bit of the position of our hearts and, and uh, that we want to put ourselves in as we approach the topic of worship. Tim says, our hearts lead our brains. 
far more than our brains lead our hearts. And you know, one of the things that he does is he just says something like that, and then he just like keeps on going. And I'm sitting there going, whoa, hold on. Let me just sit in that a minute. Our hearts lead our brains far more than our brains lead our hearts. Haven't you found that to be true in your life? If there's something you desire, it's a lot easier to say yes to it, right? Even if you know it's the wrong thing, right? And ultimately, what that leads to is this. He says, it is easier to get people to adopt the culture of the world than it is to adopt the culture of the kingdom of heaven. And so that's our ultimate goal this morning, is to discover what does the Bible say about worship culture in the kingdom of heaven that we have access to now as believers and part of the family of God that we can pull down into this room on a Sunday morning. And that's what we want to adopt. That's what we want to put on this morning. And so in order to do that, we're going to be jumping around scripture quite a bit. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. And this is the very first worship service recorded in scripture. It happens right after the nation of Israel has been taken out of captivity in the land of Egypt. God has rescued them miraculously uh, as Pharaoh and his army chased after the nation of Israel after they had crossed the Red Sea, which had been parted. God closed the waters and consumed the entire army of Pharaoh. And I encourage you at some point this week, read uh, Exodus 15, 1 through 20, in one sitting and think about all of the different worship-related themes that are in that passage because it's really astounding. For right now, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump ahead, okay? It says, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. If you go through and you read those 20 verses in this section, you're going to find themes of, uh, of, of personal responsibility that each of the Israelites felt to sing to the Lord. Uh, you're going to see, of course, the theme of freedom. They'd just been rescued out of slavery, right? You're going to see a lot of celebration. You're going to see God's faithfulness, God's provision, God's victory. God is a strength. God is a warrior asking the question, who is like our God? And ultimately, you're going to find that God is love. And so that's the overarching theme. And I think that this particular song was written after the fact to capture the, the heart of the people. But what did they actually sing in the moment? We find that a little further down in Exodus 20 and 21. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. I think that's the initial song that they started to sing. And then all of this other stuff started to tumble out. Now, there's some really amazing things about this particular passage. First of all, the first worship service recorded in history was led by a woman 
And this is also the first time in, in, in Scripture that we notice that a lady is a prophet, a prophetess. And so what qualified her in this moment, because Miriam's a character in Scripture before this, what qualified her in this moment where she took on this mantle of being a prophetess? She didn't foretell the truth, right? She didn't say anything about the future in this moment. What did she do? She correctly identified who won the battle. She correctly identified who won the battle. And so as we go through our lives, if we want to correctly identify who wins our battles for us, that's a part, a big part of worship. And she commands the people, sing to the Lord because he's victorious. Now, I don't know, I've tried to do some research. I heard once a teacher say that the tambourine, I like this imagery even if it's not true, because I've, I've tried to research ancient Egyptian tambourines, and that's a really specific thing to try to Google, right? And, and you come back with images of a tambourine, but I've heard it said that uh, the tambourines mentioned here were actually rattles that were attached to the whips that the, the Egyptians would use to keep the Israelites under slavery. And so the idea is that they rip off the symbol of their oppression, and it now becomes a symbol of their victory and celebration. I don't know if that's true, but I like it. So just to recap, worship in Exodus is this idea that God is, is big and powerful, and, and he is the one who comes in, and he, he is the one who initiates the things that cause us to experience freedom. But it's almost like freedom is the afterthought because God is just so big and so amazing and so wonderful that it, it causes us to just respond in awe. We're going to skip ahead now to 1 Chronicles 9.33. Now this is during King David's reign. And if you know anything about King David, you know that he wrote a lot of songs. Uh, a lot of the psalms in the book of Psalms are songs written by David or, or some, of the, uh, some of the other people that he had in power over, the, over that time. Now, one of the things that he did in, in 1 Chronicles 9.33 is he set up this system of the Levites, who were the people who were, who were the priests of the time. He set, up, he set them up to do 24 hours a day, seven days a week worship. And so let's read this together. It says, Now these, the singers, the heads of fathers' houses of the Levites, were in the chambers of the temple, free from other service, for they were on duty day and night. Now, a Levite is not a gene company, right? It's not a Levi, it Levites, right? They're people set apart within the nation of Israel who, who their main job was to bring praise to God. And so this begs the question, well, what did they sing? It had to be more than what Miriam sang, right? Because they're doing it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, of course, they sang the Psalms, right? The, the, you had choir masters and, and all this kind of stuff in the Old Testament, in David's reign, because you needed a lot of music in order to be able to sing for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So what did they sing and what was their responsibility? The responsibility was first and foremost to minister to the Lord. Have you ever thought about that? What does it mean to minister to the Lord? It's like being at a really fancy restaurant with somebody who is, who, 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 and your waiter is like really good, 
You know, have you ever, have you ever had that experience where you're sitting in a restaurant and you're, you're just like, this person is like doing more than just working for a tip. Like they're just really, really good. A, a good waiter will sit back and he will know exactly when your drink gets past the halfway point. Before you know it, you've got another cup right there. They're, they're constantly asking themselves, what does this person need? Like the, a good waiter might know if you need more salt before you know that you need more salt on your food, right? Like they're, they're, they're attentive to your needs. And that's what it means to minister to the Lord. And so these, these Levites, their job was to be like, okay, Lord, what do you need? What do you need from me? Anything, everything, you got it. We're going to continue to press in. We're going to continue to worship. We're going to continue to praise. And we get, we get glimpses of this attitude and songs written in this, in this vein in uh, Isaiah and in Revelation. The, the holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That's not directed inward at all. That's all external. It's all pushing out and directed specifically to him. That's what it means to minister to the Lord. And so at some point in our worship, we need to be doing that. Both in corporate worship and in private worship. But they also sang the Psalms, which means that when things weren't going great, they sang Psalms of lament. They sang Psalms of praise, Psalms of deliverance, Psalms of prophecy about Jesus, Psalms that are an outpouring of their hearts, and, and Psalms of faithfulness and rescue. It's not just that we only sing about the greatness of our God, but we also personalize it. Even the Psalms of Ascent, which were songs that as people were journeying into Jerusalem to come and worship at the temple, the Psalms of Ascent were written so that the people had songs to sing. And do you know where some of the attention was sometimes in these Psalms? It was inward focusing. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And then it's external. My help comes from the Lord. So we need songs that are, are outward focusing, focusing specifically on who God is in his greatness and in his glory. But we also are people who have to know that we're part of a story. We have to know that God has a plan for us. And so that's why we need, sometimes we need to sing corporate songs, all of us together that say, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, my God, how I need you. But it always comes back to him. And so worship in the Psalms, worship in the Davidic reign involves the concept that God is relational and God is involved. You cannot read the Psalms and not get that theme that David feels this personal connection with his God. So what did Jesus say about worship? We're going to turn quite a few pages to get to John chapter 4. Um, John chapter 4, verse 24, this is the story of the woman at the well. Um, this story is absolutely beautiful. I wish I had a lot of time to unpack this. Uh, Jesus does something that is incredibly rare in his ministry, 
in this conversation, and he answers a direct question. He gets asked a direct question, which is, which is clearly designed to, to get him off topic, and he answers it directly. It's very beautiful and a very tender thing for him to do. This woman at the well asks him a question about worship because he's, she's afraid that he's going to continue to ask her questions about her personal life. And the, the whole point of Jesus' answer is summed up in John chapter 4, verse 24. And it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I want to be desirable to God. So that means I better figure out what it means to worship him in spirit and in truth. I think worshiping in truth is pretty easy. We, we get that pretty quickly, right? Uh, worshiping in truth, that's summed up in worshiping with the truth of what we've learned through his word. The truest thing that could ever be is his word, right? And so we have to be in his word in order to know what is true. We have to be in his word in order to be able to filter out what is, what is truth and not truth. That involves our, our, not just our singing, what we're singing in church, but that also involves like what we consume, all right? We are, we are the most inundated generation of people in the history of planet as far as marketing is concerned, right? Thousands and thousands of hours of commercials have we consumed in our lifetimes, right? We need a filter to be able to distinguish what is true and not true, and the best place that we can go for that is Scripture. And you're going to see that as a theme throughout the rest of the verses that we look at. We need to know the Bible in order to know what is truth. We need to know His Scripture in order to be able to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so it goes beyond this concept of like what, worshiping in spirit goes beyond this concept of like worshiping when the mood is right, right? We're, we're going to continue to explore what it means to worship in the spirit, but I just want to, to press in on this for a second. It's not just, worshiping in spirit means more than worshiping when you're in church, it means having intentional times when your spirit says, you need to stop what you're doing and give praise. You need to stop what you're doing and do the Miriam thing and recognize who just saved you through that terrifying intersection. It means being willing to worship when, when there is truth in front of you, regardless if it's in the form of a modern worship song or or in a hymn. It means not just when the lights are down and the mood is right, and, and not when the, the music is just the right volume level or loud enough or not loud enough. It means coming to him with all that we have. Our spirit involves all of us. And so Matthew 5, 8 says, uh, this is Jesus' own words. He's, he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. They are unable to worship in spirit. And so worshiping in spirit doesn't just mean that we can say the right things. 
Worshiping in spirit doesn't just mean that you are doing the right things. You can, have, you can, have, you can, you can go into the, the, the flying V during worship and your heart be far. Right? And so, remember what Tim said, our hearts lead our brains more than our brains lead our, our hearts. This, this worship in spirit thing happens from the inside out. It's born out of relationship with Jesus. It's born out of being renewed by him. It's born out of this new life and a, a recognition that everything I am and everything I have uh, and the scope of the history of the world matters not at all compared to the greatness of who he is. And, and that's going to that's gonna spill out somewhere. Worshiping in the spirit, worshiping from your heart uh, involves what's in the inside coming out. And so worship to Jesus means that God is spirit. And we have to figure out what it means to worship him in spirit and his truth. We have to ask that question, what is on the inside of me? Is the, is the inside of me pushing me closer to Jesus? We're going to no look now at... Um, Ephesians chapter 5. There are two sister passages, uh, Colossians 3.16, which is really easy for me to remember because, you know, John 3.16, you just put Colossians at the front. Colossians 3.16, uh, that's the sis sister passage to this, Ephesians 5.8 through 21 is what we're going to be reading. And we're going to hear what Paul's commandment is to the church. And I, the reason I mentioned Colossians is because I just want you to know, like, this wasn't like a one-time thing that Paul said, like, because it's in the New Testament twice, we have a pretty good idea that Paul is continually telling all the churches this is what corporate worship looks like, okay? Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything, to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, over the past couple weeks, um, there has been a, a pop star in our region, right? There's been Taylor Swift has been around, and if you have social media at all, uh, you've probably seen um, some people who have gone to, to concerts there, and, and it's, it's generated a really interesting discussion online, uh, it, it's, it, it, people are talking about it, and, and one of the quotes that I, I saw was that it was a, it's a spiritual experience to go to this concert, right? And, and it, it doesn't have to be Taylor Swift. Like, insert your favorite band, you know, Journey or whatever. Like, the, you know, have you ever been, like, you need to go to a great concert in your life. Like, as a music guy, I kind of have to say that, right? Like, you need to go see some live, there's something about live music, great concert, that, that it's, it's an experience, right? But is it a spiritual experience? The grandeur of events like that really can trick your brain and your mind into thinking that it's more significant than it really is. And ultimately, what happens when you're at one of those concert concerts at your favorite band? 
you sing every word to every song, right? So we have an opportunity every Sunday morning to sing together to someone who is much greater than your favorite pop star. There's uh, a lot of people who, who, who get dressed up for it. They, they prepare, and there's an anticipation. There's a line to get in, right? We need to really consider how, how does our preparation for congregational worship look on a Sunday morning? And I get it. We, we do it every week, right? But our God is far more famous than any pop star. How would our hearts change if we took the time to be intentional before we came in here to sing congregationally. One of the things that I love about Ephesians 5 um, is that it says addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There is a part of congregational worship that Paul is encouraging us to do together. There is a, a, a sideways motion involved in this vertical thing that we're doing, right? And so there's, there's some do's and don'ts that come with that, all right? So we, we do sing with the congregation. I mean, being, being a bystander in congregational worship, if you're a believer, is just not an option in Scripture. Like, I know people say, like, I, I, I worship the Lord in my heart, but that's actually not in the Bible. What is in the Bible is this concept that out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth will open, your mouth speaks. And so if you're coming in here on a Sunday morning, do join in and sing. And there are some things that we're not supposed to do. That we're not supposed to, to bicker with each other, right? We're not, we're not supposed to be derisive. We're supposed to be thankful in our worship. That's a huge, huge motivation in the New Testament is gratitude. And that, that's that same idea of personalizing our worship to, so that it will externalize our ministry, right? Did you know that, that we as believers, we're the only ones who sing corporately to God? I don't like the word religion, but if you, you take Christianity as a religion and you look at all, a bunch of different other religions out there, we're the only ones who do corporate worship. Everybody else is somebody else singing out. It's a call to prayer. But, but we're the only ones who have songs that we are commanded in Scripture to sing together to our God. We're the only ones who do that. And so wh why? Why why would God do that? Well, I think it's because it unifies us. It gives us one voice. It gives us one focus. It gives us one central thing to focus on and join our hearts together. It's like a team-building exercise every Sunday and a common bond that you share with your brothers and sisters in the room. I think about it this way. All right, I've taken my family to baseball games, and you know, during the seventh inning stretch, you're going to sing, take me out to the ball game, right? And I've Taking my kids to the CHS soccer games this year, and every time the team scores, they sing, Ole, 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 ole. 
And I've gone to basketball games with AJ and Tim, and I guess the thing that you're supposed to do there, because I'm not much of a basketball guy, is you yell at the referees, right? (laughs) We are called as a people to unite together. And the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning are supposed to have that effect on us. I used to think that I wanted to come into a worship service on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night when I was in high school, and what I would do is I would close my eyes, and I would just just be like, Lord, I just want to, I want everything else to fade away right now. I just don't want, I don't want anybody else to be in my mind. I, I don't want to care what anybody else thinks. Which is a, this is a very healthy thing to pray. I don't want to care what anybody else thinks. I just want it to be you and me right now. And I want to worship. I want to worship you as if there's no one else in the room. And I'm old enough that it was, this was before like dance, like nobody's watching was on everybody's kitchen counter somewhere. You know, and I think that there's something beautiful about that particular heart for individual worship, for my private times of worship. But I really missed out a lot when I was in high school, and I didn't come into the room and say, "Lord, you really love these people." I want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I want to worship as part of something bigger than myself. Do you get the distinction? It's subtle. But the the focus isn't specifically on one relationship. We are the body of Christ. We We are supposed to be just absolutely bonded together, united in a way that makes very little sense to the rest of the world. And one of the key ways that God has chosen to unite us together is by calling us to sing congregationally together. So what does that, what does that mean practically? Like, if I'm going to do that, what what will happen with my body in order to join in worship and just more than just my heart? Well, Ephesians 5 has some some, uh, advice for that as well, some commands for that as well. It says, do not be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, um, does that that mean that being filled with the Spirit equates drunken behavior? I don't think so, no. It means that in the same ways that your actions are directed under the influence of alcohol, you allow the Spirit to control you. And, and allowing Him to control you in congregational worship will always result in worship. It will in, involve singing. Did you know that there's over 400 references to singing in Scripture? 
and 50 of them are direct commands, not suggestions, not these, this per- person saying here. It's a command to you, they, the reader, to sing to the Lord. So 50 direct commands in Scripture to sing to him. Remember that, that, that that's that idea that whatever's on the inside of you is going to be spilling out, right? And that's why the Lord commands us to sing. It's not like this, well, you have to sing. It's, you don't have a good voice, and so it's all right, you get a pass. But no, it's, he's commanding you to sing so that, so that what, what is in our hearts, sometimes our mouths and what comes out of our mouth and what comes out of our body, sometimes our body leads first before our heart catches up, Right? And so he said, just sing to me and then allow the spirit to work inside of you, spill out your praise. Because if you can't praise him when you're surrounded by your friends, what makes us think that we'll stand up for him when we're surrounded by our enemies? There's a lot of other things that the Holy Spirit will prompt you to do. And if you know, remember spirit and truth, you know your truth of scripture. And you don't have to be scared about what he's going to prompt you to do because it's going to align with his word, right? There are, 100, uh, there are 212 verses in scripture that talk about raising hands while worshiping, most notably 1 Timothy 2.8 and the whole chapter of Psalm 124. In fact, we're going to do that right now. We're going to read an entire chapter of the Psalms. Are you ready? Okay, you're going to have to stay with me because it's a whole chapter. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. The end. It's the whole chapter. And there's two commands in there. Bless the Lord, lift up your hands while you do it. That's it. So here we have the command to lift our hands. Other forms of expression we find in scripture, playing musical instruments. So when the band is up here, sometimes if they've got that concentration face on, it's, it's an act of worship. <laughs> yeah, playing musical instruments, specifically playing them loudly, specifically playing percussion instruments, Stringed instruments, bowing before the Lord, laying face down before the Lord, confession of sin, shouting in praise, the list goes on and on and on. And so to, the, our application here is that when we come, we're worshiping with spirit and in truth, it, it, it involves a new mindset. Suddenly, worship and congregational worship is not Christian karaoke. We get to pick our favorite songs that are on the radio or, or, or the favorite song that we hear, or, or only engage in the songs that we like, like and it's because it's, it's not an individual practice. It's a corporate sacrifice that, that places us in the middle of the same story, caring for one another. I wonder what, I wonder what song, I wonder what song Craig needs to hear this week. You wouldn't believe how many times I uh, pick a song and I'm just going, Lord, I, 
I don't, I, this just doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like the right song for this week, but I can't get away from it. It's like, oh, okay, I'll schedule it anyway. And then, lo and behold, it's like y'all are standing out there like during this song. And then one person comes up to me afterwards. It's like, oh, I didn't get that too. That one line about Okay, sometimes the Lord picks a song. We're going to sing congregationally, and it's just for one of y'all. Corporate sacrifice that places us in the middle of the same story, directing our attention to the same God, and uniting us as his people and vital members of his kingdom. So the question is, do we want a worship culture at our church. Yes. Yes, we do. Because that's the same thing as Jesus' prayer to want his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. You believers in the room are, are ambassadors of a new kingdom. There, there can be a culture of worship in our church. There can be a culture of worship in your home. It goes beyond yourself. But remember, it's always easier to adopt the culture of the world than it is to adopt the culture of the kingdom of God. And so every, every church has a worship culture. The question is, is it a biblical worship culture? One of the best ways that... Um, I've hesitated to whether or not to share this or not because it can come across as really harsh. And so I want you to get my heart before I actually say what I'm about to say. This whole concept of having worship as a thing that is both external and individual, both congregational and relational, I'm... I'm, I'm Pressing into it pretty hard because there's something really beautiful that happens when you start to obey in this. And I don't want you to miss out. What I'm telling you this morning is there's more. There's more that you can have in your depth of relationship with your king and in the depth of relationship that you can have with the congregation. The whole point of this sermon is not to to, to manipulate you or to, to twist your arm into singing 10% louder and raising your hands 2% more. The whole point of this sermon is to, to allow you to enter into this kingdom thing that we have been promised in Scripture. And this vision for the church as a whole that is absolutely beautiful. But remember that worship involves sacrifice. And it's through that act of sacrificing that sometimes the Lord really works in us and suddenly that sacrifice becomes a joy. Sometimes that sacrifice doesn't, doesn't hurt as much as we thought it would because he, he, he sees it and he blesses it. Okay, And so the, the question that we're going to ask ourselves now the personal question that we're going to ask ourselves now before we come back into 
the mindset of I'm part of a congregation is do we think that a Pharisee or a disciple would be more comfortable in our church? The teachers of the law who knew the Bible really well, but then also were ultimately responsible for killing Jesus. The Pharisees. Disciples, his followers. The band can come on up um, as we consider this. Let me just, let me just t- give you a list of some of the things that are characteristic of both. And I know this is small. I'm sorry, I can email this to you if you'd like it afterwards. But a, a disciple sacrifices. The Pharisee is selfish, right? The, the disciples ask, how will God be glorified? The Pharisee would ask, are we going to sing songs that I like? The disciples long for God to move in power. The Pharisee discourages the miraculous because it's scary. The disciple doesn't care about being cool. And the Pharisee is consumed with status. The disciple would die for Christ, but the Pharisee will go with public opinion. The Pharisee comes asking, what can I give? The Pharisee asks, what can I get today? The disciple says, I've got nothing to lose because it all belongs to him. The Pharisee has everything to lose. The disciple knows that he's part of not just a a local family, not just a physical family, not just a, a body in Dalton, Georgia, but he's part of a global family. And the Pharisee realizes that it's lonely at the top. And the disciple counts battle scars, and the Pharisee accounts for attendance and dollar bills in the offering. So who would be more comfortable in our church? We don't want to be people that Jesus referred to in Matthew 15, 8. And honor them, honor him with their lips, but their hearts are from, far from him. We don't want our worship to be in vain. And so we want to be disciples who, who enter into something out of more than an obligation of blind obedience. But, but we want to be disciples who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so what, what do you do this morning if you feel like you're more of a Pharisee than a disciple? Or, or what if you just came in to visit your mom and suddenly it's like, oh my goodness, what? I didn't really out, maybe you're realizing you're missing out on some of this freedom and this joy I've been talking about. And you want to be part of something bigger than yourself, part of this Jesus kingdom stuff. I I would encourage you, don't hide or dismiss the problem. Come to Jesus in faith that his death, his burial, his resurrection has paid the full price for your sin and my sin. He can cleanse you of that sin. And and even, not not just cleanse you of the sin, he can even cleanse us of the the sinful motives in our hearts. And then he he can transform us into new beings through the truth of his word and through relationship with people in this church. That's, That's how I've been transformed. It wasn't just sitting alone studying scripture. It's it's studying scripture and then talking about it with somebody. That's how I've seen the most transformation and the most Christ-likeness come out of my own life. Because if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, for all of our wrongdoings. You can have a conversation with him right now.
Don't you dare think that you can grow as a disciple on your own. I believe that God has designed us to need people. Not as much as we need him. We need people. And so as we sing this next song, as we sing, God, you're so good. It's an opportunity for us to, to confess. It's an opportunity for us to rejoice. It's an opportunity for us to put into practice what we just were talking about and sing to him together as a congregation. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll sing. Father, never let us tolerate our hearts being far from Jesus. We've been loved way too much to distance ourselves from you. And so, Father, we come back to you now, saying we are yours. Everything we are and everything that we have in spirit and in truth, Father, our, our, in spirit, our whole self, Father, we come to you. Lord, I pray that you would direct us in our worship according to your word. Direct our hearts to new, deeper levels of connection to you and to each other. Father, I pray that your kingdom would dwell richly at Fellowship Bible Church. Let's sing this thing together. You're so good. You're so. 
give him some praise. Father, you've been faithful. We thank you. We worship you. Thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace,